there is a study that recently found that East Asians are um, more prone to getting short-sightedness compared to the rest of the world. Uh, you can obviously see a lot of us wearing glasses um, very early on in their lifetime, uh, and it's quite frequent. So it, it is true, and, and that, that's only um, epidemiologically mm-hmm. speaking. So the study hasn't found why that is so. They, they weren't able to really pinpoint to genetics or environment, per se, as the cause of such frequency of people having short-sightedness. So there are certain disease entities that we as Koreans are more vulnerable to. Diabetes is also another example. Uh, Compared to any other countries, I believe Korea stands far on the top of having a lot of the population being diabetic. The eyesight one I know, but with diabetes, I generally associate it with being overweight, sugar, and things like that. What's the diabetes one? Um, So there have been numerous theories. Some people have said that um, it may be due to the diet habits that we've had for a very Mm. long time, such as in in eating rice. But that makes me think that then then why won't Japanese have as much of the frequency of diabetes in that country? So diabetes does not necessarily only equate to people being obese. Quite a lot of the times when we see patients in, in a Korean setting, uh, we see a lot of people actually losing weight before coming into the hospital and being, being found of having diabetes. So that's quite uh, frequent of the case uh, in Korea as well. So there may be some genetic issue that's involved, or there may be some, as I said, diet issue right. that's involved, but I could never be 100% sure about why. What about over time so obviously Korea's changed so much even in my sort of two decades here I've I, I, I've noticed that sort of Korean people have gotten taller have gotten bigger and I don't think it's me shrinking but the students and, and the people that I interact with in the university classrooms they're, they're 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 getting a lot bigger do you have any observations about Korean health over the last sort of you know few decades as it's going through this modernizing mm-hmm. process that's actually a um Good point that you made. Um, recently, there was a um, retrospective study that found Korean people actually have gotten much taller, so much so that a couple, well, within last couple of years or so, they've reached a plateau. And since like two years back, we've actually started decreasing in height slightly. so i yeah it has i think it has a lot to do with our diet habit especially uh because back in the 60s and 1970s we were not so rich in 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 nutrients and in in our regular diet so people just tended to be much shorter also we were exposed to a lot of uh very common infected diseases uh, while growing up so that kind of hindered growth and height as well going into 80s and 90s with a very fast development and also coming very westernized in, in 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 food habits and whatnot we've started to have a lot of calories so to speak that's being intake into into the body so we've gotten a lot taller in our um height but at the same time, we've also grown a lot of bees. Mm. Um, so coming into the 2000s, I believe, because back in 1980s or 1990s, we, we almost never had any issues with people being too obese. But starting in the 2000s, that was very uh, common issue that we were having in, our, uh, in the medicine in Korea. How big is that problem? Because, I mean, coming, if I go back to the United Kingdom, I feel kind of thin and slim and I can wear medium clothes. If I shop in South Korea, it's like extra large and things like that. How, so I know it's relative, but is obesity a problem in South Korea or is it just kind of a small fringe issue? So I am not a formal expert in epidemiology. So I am, I won't, I won't be able to give you exact numbers in that Mm -hmm. regard, but so by the book, uh, when I was going to uh, medical school, in the book was probably from like 10, 15 years ago, a, accumulation of knowledge is in the yeah. book that, that, that we were taught, especially to the, in, in regards to the epidemiology in Korea, uh, obesity have not been such a big issue. So there aren't that many topics that cover uh, uh, how we need to approach the topic of obesity. 
there are, of course, treatment levels and what we can do about it, you know, education of healthy diet habits and whatnot. But there haven't been really a huge topic about obesity. More so when I became a doctor and when I went into practice, a huge portion of the patients that I see every day come in because they want to lose weight. And their BMI levels are obviously way over the limit. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so that actually, I think that's actually a good point for me to elaborate a little bit more. Right. Compared to the Western world, they set BMI levels of 25 or less to be normal. Now in Korea, we set it at 23. Mm. because on the average, Korean people are just in general much thinner than the Western people. Nowadays, the people that I see because of their weight problems, uh, they're mostly way over 30 in their BMI levels. It's very common for me to see anybody in between 27 to 30 of, of their BMI levels, whether they be males or females. That's something that no doctor would have seen what it had been in 1980s, 1990s. So let, let's put it that way. Right. Is When you see this in, when you're working as a doctor, is it related to age? Because I know like now I'm in my forties, even if I look at fried chicken, I gain weight. I don't even have to eat it. Right? <laughs> so it's hard, the metabolisms. Right. But is it, yeah. you know, just amongst sort of middle-aged people that you experience this or does it go all the way down to young? Or uh, I, I've seen people who are in their 70s and 80s worried about their obesity. I, I also often see people in, in their 20s and 30s coming into the hospital because they're obese. So nowadays it's, it's, it's really dispersed throughout the ages. Thinking of the like health system more generally, I don't have many frames of knowledge, but I know in the United Kingdom, we have the NHS, which is sort of that mm-hmm. free at the point of service thing. And, and then you have this kind of opposite in the United States where we hear all these horror stories about paying tens of thousands of dollars for an aspirin or something like this. South Korea seems to be amazing. Is it? Is there a set of answer you expect me to well, I mean, <laughs> answer you back? <laughs> where does it, I've always been really impressed with, in terms of the service, the insurance, the quality. Right. Uh, from my own right. experiences, whether it's with our children being born and raising them, I've been in hospital once for something, and I've always found it like reliable, cheap, efficient, and things like that. Is that a fair assessment of it, I guess I'm asking? Currently, yes, for the patients and customers of the service mm-hmm. uh, and that's how it should be um but not the doctor. formally speaking yeah. <laughs> but, but not the doctor it's definitely taking tolls uh on uh, uh a part mm-hmm. of the wholesome society if we want to provide a very good service to customers somebody has to work that much harder yeah. or somebody has so it has to come out of somebody's pocket Right. Thankfully, that has been from the doctor's pocket so far. There is a department called Kongang mm-hmm. Bohem. So that'll be that'll, that'll be kind of similar to NHS in, in the UK that governs over how the medical system works totally in Korea. If they set a certain price for a certain procedure, mm. we are legally obligated to be fixed on that price. And it's for the best of the customers and patients, obviously. They don't want Korean nationals or or people who are being treated in Korea to pay overpriced uh, for any of the services or medicine. So it's, it's, it's for a good purpose. Back in like 30, 40 years ago, when we had much little numbers of doctors available throughout the nation, that was still okay because those doctors were still able to make a living based on the set of prices that the government set certain procedures to. And then there are many other aspects that the doctors could still make money off of in regards to treatment and consultations and whatnot. Government, the governance has became larger and larger ever since. They wanted to take more things into their control for the benefit of obviously the citizens, but that meant that these doctors and also growing numbers of doctors could not rely on solely on the the usual treatments or consultations or uh, medicine Mm -hmm. to make their living. So they sort of started to diverge their service 
it, let's say, uh, for example, into aesthetics right. or, or, or into something extra in addition to the ordinary regular treatment that follows the protocol by the medical book. Uh, such as, you know, um, IV injections, some of the things that you go to hospital to get uh, mm -hmm. when you're, you know, you know, well, when you're feeling not so good. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of right now stuck in, in a very huge and fast transition mm. to even bigger governments by the government. So obviously, uh, the government wants to take larger and more deeper control of all the pricings uh, in medicine, as opposed to doctors completely defying or rejecting that idea, because obviously, number one, they want more freedom in making decisions. Mm. They think that they can offer different kinds of options for a single procedure or, or, or something uh, of a disease entity. But number two, there's also an issue of different levels of, um, so different interests between the two different groups, basically. Sure. So obviously government, the biggest goal of, from the, of the government is to make everything accessible to the citizens. Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to doctors, doctors think that there are different types of patients, even for a single, uh, entity of a disease. So uh, let's let's make an example for appendicitis. So that's the inflammation in the appendix, which is pale like organ that's kind of attached to our intestine that's connecting to from from the small intestine to the large intestine. Yep. Sometimes people have inflammation in there, and sometimes people do need surgical removal appendix due to the inflammation. Mm -hmm. Now, back in the days. 70s and 80s, the only procedure we had at hand, as from a doctor's medical point of view, was manual surgery. We're just cutting open the that small area of the abdomen, and we're actually just man manually pulling it out and cutting it off under anesthesia, of course. Mm -hmm. And then that was the only option that we had. Nowadays, we have different types of procedures that we can give patients, such as the manual surgery. And then now I'm trying to find the English word here. So in Korean, it would be called pokkangyang surgery. Okay. That's where you put in a scope into the abdomen and do the surgery with much higher advanced technology machines. Obviously, it's safer, yep. faster to do it with the machine, a, a robot, a robot mm. uh, than to do it manually, but it'll be much um, pricier. Now, recently, our government made the decision to set all kinds of procedure done on appendix to be set at the same price. So what happens afterwards is that no doctor in his or her right mind is going to use a robot to do that surgery right. because it'll be right too much investment into making the same set of money. So many local hospitals and local clinics have then gone um, either to refer the appendicitis patients to only bigger hospital because they just don't want to handle it anymore or they have gone back to doing manual surgeries. So it's that kind of a deal and more and more procedures and uh, medical treatment uh, regimen are becoming, coming into that situation right now as the government wants to take control over. Does that mean then that things get political? So I, I, I'm not sure of the sort of main party's view on healthcare, I must confess, off the top of my head. But I know, for example, in other countries, there will be some parties that advocate sort of an open market and let people decide what they want to do. And the opposition right. party will want more sort of state-centered control of policies and finance. Does that same thing right. play out in South Korea? Absolutely. A certain political party would take sides much stronger with citizens. Mm -hmm. And uh, another party would take uh, sides with doctors because they titled it more logical. Yeah. Politics is always involved in making decisions of such things. But um, there's also a mixture of people in, in, in even in each portion of the society. So even among doctors, mm -hmm. there is a uh, differences in, in, in their um, take on the issue, sure. so to speak. So. Yeah. Right, right. So if, if you were to have if you were to have been a surgeon who has to deal with making money off of this certain procedure, obviously that person will be greatly against the government taking control of the procedure. But if you were to be, let's say, an ep epidemiologist, 
mm. who's still who's also an MD, uh, would obviously take sides with the citizens. So he, he or she would definitely agree well, with the government taking control of the issue. So the, even um, inside the society of the doctors, there is mixture of different thoughts and claims. Really, yeah, that's real life. Real life is always complicated. I I, I just yeah. want to go back to this one point that you said about that some some doctors or, or it might be it might occur that some people would seek different ways to make money that if the, mm -hmm. the 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 citizens and that were getting the good service but the doctors was were struggling that they might mm -hmm. seek other things now i've heard about i read about this in terms of tattoos and things like that but is it like plastic surgery or ivs you mentioned what is there some whole extra industry there yes <laughs> and that's becoming a a um controversial past a few years in, in, in medical world. More and more, while the government wants control over, less and less attractive the medicine, the field of medicine have become for high-performing students, let's say. Let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. So back in the days, 10, 20 years ago, when doctors were making lots of money, and um, ideally speaking, they were able to focus only on treating people, because their lives were pretty much taken care of with the money that they were making then. Hmm. Uh, but ever since the government started taking much more control, they were making less money. So they had to come up with ideas or you know, think about how they would make better living uh, from the same jobs that they were doing. So it became less attractive for high-performing students, especially even, if, even after they came into medical schools. Okay. So they started picking a certain subjects or fields that were um, less controlled by the government, either number one, or or that 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 they only cared for patients uh, that the government could not touch. Basically, there are only surgical methods that government really cannot do anything about. So it was that back five five ten years back, I think, um, dermatology or plastic surgery. Those were, or, or even ophthalmology, I think, mm. those were uh, fields of medicine that the government did not have too much control over. So those were the, the subjects that uh, the top five or 10 people in the class of the medical school got it, went into. Okay. Now coming to the time being right now, even that point has passed and they're having rather very dark sort of scheme of um, um, future in their mind going out to the medical field from medical school. So a lot of the people these days uh, cho actually choose to take a couple of years off mm -hmm. rather than going straight into internship and going on to residency to sort of explore what other options they might have. That The perks of it is that while they do that, uh, because they have the license already, they're just not specialized because they haven't finished uh, their training, mm. uh, but they're licensed uh, because they finished their uh, medical school. They're able to actually go outside and do medicine. Obviously, they yeah. Obviously, these people would not choose to go into something more specific and more, uh, let's say, treating a real patient but rather it's easier to seek a job at a um, aesthetic clinic mm -hmm. because the aesthetic clinic, even though it still has to be done by medical doctors only, uh, it doesn't require a specific or specialized knowledge or a, a board certification, let's say, mm. uh, from, a, from a certain department but it still earns them quite a huge money because that part is not considered quite medical enough by the government. So they don't want to take control of that field. So that's what's happening these days. So we're lacking people going into pediatrics or internal medicine or general surgery because those are hard and long trainings, which in the end would earn medical doctors, specialized medical doctors, only a set of uh, money that's pretty much controlled by the government. But if they go into aesthetics, which has no boundaries, no really limitations or restrictions by the government, they could earn money as much as they work in for. It's fascinating to think of those knock-on effects on like sort of the, the plastic surgery industry and the aesthetics, the, the skincare, right. and how that might is being affected by the actual healthcare system and the money being given to the workers mm -hmm. in that. 
Mm -hmm. If I'm not sure if this question becomes even more difficult or controversial than politics, but inside Korea or in Asia more broadly, I guess, but in South Korea, you also mm -hmm. have honey ones like right. oriental medicine. And I know there's been a lot of conversation that should be on insurance policies. It shouldn't. It's part of cultural heritage. And, you know, I, I've had some acupuncture and some like thung and some hot things on my back. It yeah. didn't really work. But, yeah. you know, yeah. how does that work in all of this? Oh, now, now you have gotten into a great trouble. Yeah. All right. One wrong word out of my mouth, I'm going to be in so much trouble. All right. I'll be careful not to make um, too many people um, unhappy. But, okay. So, from a medical doctor's point of view, mm. uh, we don't necessarily consider oriental medicine to be uh, proper medicine. There is a field, uh, not so popular, but still uh, exists in the field of medicine called alternative medicine. And it's a field of medicine that explores around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned, uh, some, some countries might have heritages of different uh, treatment regimens and whatnot. They explore those and apply into the actual medicine we call yeah. uh, and see if, if it actually works. There have been some remedies and regimens that actually show some effects or some efficacy. When you mention acupuncture, mm -hmm. if you go to Johns Hopkins Medical School's website uh, under the, the alternative medical department, mm -hmm. uh, they compare these different methods and treatments and herbal medicines and whatnot. So they show comparisons of efficacies of the, these different uh, methods or um, treatments. Acupuncture actually does show to have efficacy against inflammation. Wow. Um, but just go ahead and pop a pill of ibuprofen instead. Mm -hmm. And that would have given the same effect. So it, it, it's that kind of a matter. Even though some doctors may realize that acupuncturists actually do have effects in an anti-inflammatory effect, uh, they still may choose to you know, use the ordinary oral pills. Yep. Also, history and politics involved through the past couple of decades in different uh, presidencies and different governments, mm. uh, there have been um, different kinetics, so to speak, uh, from the government towards medical doctors. Some um, governments did give uh, medical sector enough credit Mm -hmm. But some governments didn't want to. But that was partly due to also the fact that their thoughts that other fields of medicine, such as, well, I can't call it that, other fields of alternative medicine, let's put it that way, yeah. like, such as oriental medicine or such as something else, mm. could be as legitimate as medicine. So these governments who think like that would give higher credits or higher credibility to obviously herbal medical medical doctors. So um, the Western medical doctors would have less say or effect in making decisions of, of medicine and that and the governance, I guess. Then it becomes political at least as well, whether there's support yes. for those types of treatments or there's less support. But now I guess to try to come onto the serious thing of COVID, right, which we're living right. through at the moment. And I'm, I'm not quite really sure where to start with this, but um, when I look, just to start perhaps here, when I look at the, the number of fatalities in yeah. South Korea compared to what I see in Western Europe, I come up with all these reasons and explanations and, uh, and things for it, but why is this? Why, why have there been so fewer fatalities, and any fatality is too many, of course, but relatively sure. fewer in South Korea? I can give you a single single word answer for that. It's, it's mandatory isolation for all confirmed patients in Korea. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of following the footsteps of, I think, Australia or maybe even China mm. in the sense that we want to take the most conservative approach possible towards taking care of COVID-19 patients, meaning we don't want anyone to be exposed to the virus to the highest level possible. Mm -hmm. uh, China did that by thoroughly checking everyone coming into the country, 
on top of completely isolating a city if there was a, a few of the cases happening in that um, geographical region. Uh, Australia also has locked down their entire country for some time. Uh, Korea, so they we couldn't do that, but the only alternative that way we could sort of follow that level was by isolating everyone who was confirmed of cases, regardless of severity uh, of the disease that they were having. So there were a bunch of people staying in these social facilities without any symptoms whatsoever, then that they were mandatorily put there for uh, uh, at least 10 days. Mm -hmm. Um, So that minimized any chances of exposure in the country up until a certain point where we just became completely complacent and everybody got tired and everybody started going back to, you know, their uh, regular lifestyle. But that that's how we managed to keep such lower no, low numbers of uh, not just the mortality and um, people with severe diseases, yeah. but also with uh, daily confirmation cases as well. So it was the track and tracing thing because there was never lockdown. When I look at other there countries, was never lockdown. No. That that often gets missed, I think, in the press sometimes about South Korea and things like this. People have always been able to go wherever they want. But I think that um, whole picture is going to gradually change especially from this point on, though, because uh, I think we're trying to also open up a little more. Mm, yeah, it seems that way. In terms of the, the track and tracing and the, the, the isolating of these people, it, it's strange to call it relative success of South Korea's COVID response because, I, you know, it, it, it's not been the best, but it's not been the worst, but relatively successful. How much of that comes down to citizens' self-regulation and, and like top-down policies? I mean, is it something that the health officials can stand up and go, we did this, or, or, or was it something happening amongst the population more organically? I weigh way much more on the latter. Uh, it, it's, it's the citizens, well, uh, how we came about, uh, well, how we were able to manage it in, in, in such very um, healthy fashion. That's also probably one of the reasons why we have started to uh, go such steeply into high numbers all of a sudden because people got tired. Mm. Before that happened, every one in the nation were pretty much in a scared mode. They were all like really scared to even go out, go step out of the house, mm. or even go to pharmacies yeah. to pick up a like, Tylenol pills for their headache or whatnot. So the, the, timely government made strict um, social distancing guidelines and whatnot that people did follow. I think that that's how we were able to keep such low levels of um, daily confirmations and whatnot up until a few weeks ago. Do the the current numbers scare you? I mean, do you look at the news every day and go like, oh my God, or is it just like (laughs) you see a larger trend? How do you feel when you see these current sort of 2000s? Honestly speaking, and I might ask you to edit this out (laughs) after the conversation, but um, honestly speaking, I am not scared at all. Now is what what we're seeing is what we should probably have seen uh, at least a couple months back. But... Uh, it's also, I feel much safer now than before mm. that we have covered quite a huge high percentage of more vulnerable generations now. Oh, I, I believe, uh, if I'm not incorrect, I believe we have covered 80 or 90% of the um, people in their 70s and 80s. Um, also, people who have um, underlying severe underlying diseases; those all most of those people have been covered. Mm. So, even though we're seeing like two thousand or three thousand daily confirmation cases, the number of people actually dying are barely seven and eight daily, yeah. or even less. Uh, also, uh, people who require, let's say, much um, invasive method of treatment because their severity is more severe than other people have also gone down quite low. Uh, so it, it's not taking uh, a toll on the um, medical capacity. So I'm much less scared. That's different from the message that we sort of get in the media. And I try not to pay attention to everyday news because you get lost in in the, the mayhem of it all. But I, it's interesting when you say the amount of people 
passing away or the amount of people with severe conditions is very different from the number that gets reported, these very large numbers. There has also been a huge change and transition from prior uh, infective variants to the variants that we're currently having. I think it's both good and bad. This particular variant, the Delta variant, at least as far as what we're seeing in my vicinity, it spreads so much faster to so much more people, so many more people, that people who have come into contact with another infected person started showing their symptoms only a day or two later, as opposed to we used to see that a week or two weeks later uh, after their contact with the person. So it means that it's going to spread that much quickly because it started to just spread to everyone around us. Yeah. But also that means it, it's kind of like a fire. It's, it's, it's become a, such a wildfire that it's going to burn up really fast, but it's also going to be extinguished very fast as well because everybody sort of can expect where it's happening mm. and, and they can sort of stay away from it either. Or number two, uh, they can acknowledge of their illness right away and go straight to the hospital right afterwards. So the speed of transmission is actually useful for tracing and being aware of where it is. Yes, uh, epidemiologically speaking, but also medically speaking, yeah. it also means that the person would be able to find out whether or not the, he or him, she herself has the disease, right? It's not just about staying away from the disease, but it's so if a person was to actually be infected, mm. that person would find out much sooner than before. So, so that they wouldn't be able to go to hospital straight. And they can protect their loved ones, their friends and their families as well by knowing exactly. it is so key. Exactly. In, in terms of vaccines, now I remember mm -hmm. when, I, when I started getting my vaccines, and I, I was lucky to get it quite early, Fast Fingers, right, guitarist, musician. <laughs> I, I saw on my Insta, you were like, yes, 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 congratulations. Right. You, were, you were very supportive of this. Now, yes. for the most part, vaccines hasn't been really politicized in Korea. Of course, there is always elements of it that are for and against it, and nothing's ever 100%. But is it, isn't it quite a good thing that for the most part in South Korea, there's been a desire, a willingness to get vaccines, and then those vaccines have come out quickly? Is that a success story? Or do you see it differently? I think that's quite paradoxical, though. And once again, this is very my personal uh, opinion mm. uh, about the whole issue. The reason why we were so eager to get the vaccine probably and partly was because we lacked it so much. It, from the beginning, we we're barely able to inoculate a certain group of people step by step. And then we had a huge phase of not being able to uh, come up with second shots for a certain group of people. Mm -hmm. I guess that sort of um, gave senses to the general population that, oh, if I if I miss the chance right now, it, it might be much later that I have my second chance. So it that probably or maybe that's why that sort of brought the brought up the eagerness from those people. Uh, but yes, it did work very well for our country. Uh, that, that, that people were very willing to um, receive the shots because now we're clearly seeing. And I think it's also have very um, scientifically uh, backboned mm -hmm. uh, that uh, people, despite we're seeing a lot of breakthrough cases recently, especially with the Delta variant, despite being infected after getting the vaccines, these people who have been vaccinated are showing almost no symptoms, if at all. Mm -hmm. And also their transmission rate to other people are also remaining very low, uh, let alone almost no one. All, and I'm saying, I'm, I'm emphasizing almost nobody is dying uh, from COVID-19 infection if they have been infected. I mean, I mean, if they have been vaccinated. I said it's scientifically backbone because the vaccines, I, I realized that there, has, there was a controversy whether or not the vaccines can actually protect us from the virus, actually, you know, you know uh, completely prevention, pre pre preventing it, uh, preventing the virus. Now, if I may go into a little more detail scientifically, the vaccines are inoculated into our body to create antibodies in our blood circulation. Yeah. That's inside the body. So that'll have 
probably a good effect if the virus was to be circulating inside the body. But that's not the route of transmission. The route of transmission is through our respiratory droplets. Prevention happens on the attachment site of the viral particle that's hanging in the droplet, which is the, the, at the end place of the, our nostrils, yeah. uh, the mucosa layer of there. Our antibodies formed in the circulation would not necessarily reach all the way out to the mucosa layer of the nostrils if they're uh, not high enough in their levels number either, or they have differentiated into a different forms of antibody because they have there are different types of antibodies such as IgM, IgG, and IgA. IgM and IgG are the two types of antibodies that mostly circulate into our circulation. Mm -hmm. IgA specifically and differently is the one that exists in the mucosa. Now these vaccines currently are studied to be able to only uh, formulate IgG and IgM antibody. So scientifically speaking, once we get inoculations, it's going to prevent uh, what's already infected in our nostrils not to spread to our visceral organs, such as the lungs, right. such as the kidneys or liver. So that would protect us from either dying or becoming pneumonia uh, patient from the disease having been inoculated, but it won't necessarily completely block off the viral particle from attaching to the mucosa of the nostrils or the pharynx, which would give you the infection. That's why masks is still important, I guess, because masks will Absolutely. block that. They're the, you know. Absolutely. And, um, um, and if I may refer to a couple of different studies also from before, masks are known to be able to block up to about 95 to 97% of viral particles, which is, you know, if you compare the efficacy of vaccines of, if, of its prevention rate, let's say the best one there is either one from Moderna or Pfizer, mm. they show about 90, low 90s of percentages of efficacy, while the max, if you were properly, would block it off about 95 to 97%. Even before COVID, a lot of people in South Korea were wearing masks. Like working at a university, students would come in with a mask with a mask on, and I'd say, "Okay, right. it's either because of fine dust, because mm -hmm. you're not wearing makeup today, you just want to hide, mm -hmm. and you didn't have a shower." But there was there was general sort of common mask wearing in in South Korea that was just non-existent in other parts. That that's very true too, and also I believe it was a trend of youngsters wearing masks as a fashion item. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In terms of the, the vaccines and, and what they do, I heard that <laughs> if you, I had, my first one was AstraZeneca and my second one was Pfizer. Mm. So I've been telling mm. people, oh yeah, I've got the cocktail, man. It, it, this is the, right. it, do these make any difference? Like what order you get them in or a certain better, or is it all going to change as we go forward and, the, and the, the virus itself changes? They actually do make huge difference. Okay. Uh, what orders you receive uh, the shots in. Uh, it's the best if you receive AstraZeneca shot first and then either Moderna or Pfizer shot as their second. I think it's partly because uh, a mechanism, cellular mechanism, the process to provoke immunity inside the body. Mm -hmm. I want to bring out another study that studied convalescent people being vaccinated and how much of protection they showed uh, as opposed to non-convalescent people who, who also received the same shots. Mm. And it was shown that people who recover from the disease at least six months prior to receiving vaccination showed almost superhuman ability of protection. And they dug deeper into why that would be and gave out actually a very legitimate proposition or, or theory. Mm. It was because people who have been exposed to the disease before, right after the infection, they already started growing a certain level of immunity. But what's really interesting about this immunity, the system of immunity, is that they, they once antibodies are formed from prior infection, as time passes, these antibodies start to diversify morphologically. So if we, let's say there, uh, for example, if we had an Y-shaped antibody formed from a prior infection, 
within about six months or so, that Y shape would have turned into at least about 100 different types of Y shape. After that, if a person is to receive a vaccine, what vaccine does is not only it provokes our immune system to uh, formulate another Y-shaped antibody, it also boosts up the processing ability of our immune system. So it's like copying uh, manufacturing um, factories multiples of times, but that is being done six months after prior infection. So they're building manufacturers 10 times more of the hundreds of differently shaped Y-shaped antibodies. So that means you're having 100 times of all these different kinds of antibodies that can attack any differently looking viruses, meaning different variants. Now, the reason why I brought this out is because I think that's also how it works with mix and match vaccination. These uh, different types of vaccines carry slightly different codons Mm-hmm. in their uh, chemical material to provoke a certain shape of antigen based on which our body forms uh, antibodies against. A certain shape formulated by AstraZeneca would differ slightly yeah. those formulated with shots of Pfizer and Moderna. So I think that's probably why uh, people who receive mix and match vaccines showed greater levels of antibodies, but also greater protection from the infection itself as well. That actually makes a lot of sense. And I think I actually understood it as well. But I I, I should (laughs) also say that you were also telling me it doesn't matter what you can get, just get one. So it's not about only hold out for that. But you you did also say that there's there's orders of um, effectiveness. But Mm -hmm. the most important thing is to get vaccinated. And so we're already seeing now, maybe not as much in Korea as yet, booster shots. Because I, Mm -hmm. you know, we were on this idea that second shot is finished. Like one rule of this. Right. Right. It seems to be there's third shots coming. Okay. This is once again, really me just completely being too personal about the issue. I think there's too much input from the pharmaceutical companies, the makers of the uh, vaccines. Uh, and and making those decisions, especially in the U.S., because their motto for coming up with the booster shot was that these people who have received uh, Pfizer shots or Moderna shots started showing waning of antibody levels uh, six months after their final shot. Antibodies are not the only type of immunity that we grow uh, against the virus after receiving vaccines. There are different types of white blood cells that work together to sort of grow a system of immunity against the virus, either from having been infected or being uh, vaccinated. Uh, The level of antibody uh, does not completely represent the level of protection that we have from getting vaccinated. For that Mm -hmm. reason, uh, waning of antibody levels does not necessitate a booster shot to only bring up the antibody level because it's much more likely that we, at, uh, even if we are losing antibodies, we would still have a strong immune system against COVID-19 virus. The CDC's proposition or the, uh, the proposition made by the politicians in the U.S. have not gone through the reviews of FDA yet mm-hmm. because I believe that uh, as the final decision-making department, FDA would have would uh, either reject it or modify the the inoculation schedule, which I think they did uh, partially. But I think still uh, the pharmaceutical companies have too much say in it uh, because in the end, what we are currently seeing is that they have decided to inoculate only the more vulnerable people. It kind of makes sense because those people who are immunely weakened have less of the efficacy of coming up with antibody levels from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So even with the same two sets of shots, let's say people receiving cancer treatments, you know, that that is scientifically proven to uh, reduce your immune uh, reaction to a a, a vaccination provocation would have formulated slightly less of the immunity 
against the same type of a virus. So those people, I also agree that they they probably would have uh, needed to receive booster shots or something uh, un, uh, additional. Mm. Uh, also, much, much older people, let's say people in their 80s and 90s, kind of deducible that they would have also less in, uh, or um, lesser of the immune system to create these antibodies or other forms of immunity. So they may need boosters. I don't quite agree with um, inoculating people of their 50s and 60s, though. Uh, they are still strong enough. They're, they have the legitimate and properly working immune system to make as much of the immunity as the people in, in their 20s and 30s do. So FDA, I believe, made a rather partially right decision, I think, uh, in that only deciding to inoculate only certain group of mm. people instead of the whole population. Uh, I think Korea is just following what uh, the, the FDA yeah, have made, made the decision. Some of the things that make the international headlines about Korea's COVID response, I guess there's two I want to touch on as we come towards mm-hmm. the end. And one is a bit frivolous, I guess, but it was about the treadmill speeds and the, the music that was played in gyms. So there, there were regular, <laughs> I, I went up to the guy in my gym and said, like, you know, I joked about it. He's like, is this music all right? And he looked at me as if to say, are you being right. serious? Um, but they did come out. There were guidelines. It made the international press. You know, when you see that, do you think, well, actually, there's scientific studies behind that. That's right. Or this is undermining our efforts. As, as a doctor, how do you feel about these kind of guidelines? Once again, this is a very informal statement that I'm going to make. <laughs> yeah. um, I understand how they came about uh, making that idea, mm. uh, because obviously people who are running faster would read much harshly frequently as well. So obviously yeah. there would be greater chance for droplets to come out of their respiratory system and you know, greater chance for... Uh, them to actually spread around the room it it does make sense but in a larger picture if they were so concerned about people breathing so hard why didn't they worried about uh people commuting in in all closed windows buses or in subways where uh, literally millions of people commute every day and i personally think that that's actually one big route where actually we started seeing domestic cases from but there is actually something in the breathing. There is some underlying element of it, but there's... Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I always found it funny how when I was queuing up for elevators, we had to like keep social distancing. Oh, yeah. But then when we got in the elevator, everybody stood like sardines. It's like the foot it is... Exactly. I'm glad, I, exactly. I, I'm glad it wasn't my responsibility to make the rules. Because... Well, one fun, funny example that I uh, also want to mention, if it can go on here, yeah. was that uh, uh, really late last year or so, I gathered with my friends and went, went to McDonald's late at night because back, back then we didn't have um, time restrictions. Mm-hmm. I went there like at uh, 1 a.m. or something. There were some people who were sitting on the you know, table, mm. but we did have a limitation in numbers sort of restrictions in all uh, public spaces or restaurants. McDonald's being considered a restaurant, they had to limit uh, their seats to half the numbers. Okay. Guess how they managed to do that. I have no idea what Ronald McDonald did. What did they do? Right. Yeah. So so the most logical way would would have been to skip each table and block half, you know, the, the, the seats, right? Yeah. They just basically closed a floor of the uh, of, of the restaurant and they opened up the, the other floor. So everybody who went to that place was like all like jammed in this one floor of the space. So it was even worse than of before. Being, it's, it's even worse, obviously. Yeah. So it's, yeah, different approaches and different takeaways. I hope somebody's writing a book about how to do this the next time the world has this situation, right? Because you can't blame right. McDonald's. It did its thing if it's just on numbers. No, we can't. Right. right. They're only following the regulation, really, yeah. The treadmills and the elevators, they're all quite... The, the big one as well would be the K-Bangyok, the K-Quarantine. Mm-hmm. Now, it was really interesting mm-hmm. because you said earlier that the, the quarantine is actually efficient and actually does the business. So that, that, that is actually a success. That's something that should be, you know, the branding aside, perhaps, but that idea is, is a good one. Absolutely. I, I still think that we're too early to let go of the mandatory social distancing or so, uh, isolation for the people who are confirmed because we haven't really covered with vaccinations for uh, relatively younger generations. And those people still can get 
pretty sick if they're exposed to the virus. So it will please suddenly start letting people the chances of being exposed to the virus much frequently than before. I think it can cause a certain problem by isolating everyone from the society who have been infected, hmm. I think was quite legitimate and was quite efficacious. Really interesting to hear you say that because it makes me reassess my previous thoughts on it. And it's, thank you. I guess to perhaps like a, like a last topic just to finish on, which is much lighter. If there's anything else you want to add, you can. But, <laughs> but sure. my, my niece and in our house, everyone is watching Lisa's Hengwal hospital playlist, <laughs> yeah. right? So as, as a medical worker, as a doctor, do you look at this and go, yeah, this is boosting our rep in society? Or like, do you watch it or do you hear about it? Go, it's all wrong. It's terrible. Like any, any thoughts on this? I was quite surprised how, how much of attention that they paid to depict accurate pictures of what really happens in the hospital aside from all the love stories of course <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. right in, in in the surgical rooms or the situations we face with patients certain nuances or legal matters mm. uh, the, the the ones that that were shown on the drama is quite unlike what we actually face daily in our hospitals so i was quite happy about that but some of the love stories were not really um, possible. (laughs) 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 What is it? I mean, we hear stories about the the entertainment industries and things like that. Is that is the health industry like the is it full of hard drinking, love making people? (laughs) Um, They're definitely hard drinking. They're probably one of the um, hardest drinking of any sort of occupational uh, field because partly, partly I think it's because they are uh, a lot more stressed. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're exposed to a lot, uh, very heavily stressful uh, environments. Once again, off the record, (laughs) these guys are a bunch of nerds that uh, don't look so nice on the outside. Like if you go through this training, internship and residency, uh, it, it, you're lucky if you have a chance to take a shower in, in, in about a week of time or so. Mm. You'll be smelling all over, you'll be like sweating all over, your clothes are dirty, so you have to change into different scrubs every day. You, you can't really possibly find another person attractive in that period of time. Uh, so I think that love line and love story that was depicted in Pretty uh, Tang was kind of inaccurate in that sense. <laughs> But there are occasionally some people who do match with another person, but that's more commonly done because they were already coupled before going uh, coming into residency or internship. They have been going that since, you know, they're at school years. So makes a lot of sense. David, my my mother works for the NHS and there's lots of nurses in my family as well. My my my, my cousin, my cousin's daughter, Chris and Holly, they all work as nurses as well. So I have, I have great respect. For the occupation and all the things that you do thank you very much thank you for, i'm truly honored 